If you are offended by potty talk, well, then you might be offended. It's Monday, February 14th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. During the Super Bowl, there was one idea so good, everyone had it. Was it blocking the Los Angeles Rams interior lineman? No, it was not. Was it calling flagrant offensive pass interferences on T. Higgins? Nah, said the refs. What even is offensive pass interference? The idea for the offense is to catch the pass. Is he interfering with that goal if he throws the defender to the ground by his face mask? Seems like offensive pass enablement, if anything, no penalty. Now, the idea that received numerous endorsements during the Super Bowl was crypto. Crypto was the idea. It was clearly crypto. So what's cryptocurrency? Great question. Let me explain, one ad said, by having a QR code bounce around the screen for a minute. Another featured flying crypto investors, which seems fun, but as I learned from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, could leave you shredded by a ceiling fan unless you burp. LeBron James advised his former self to play basketball professionally in an ad that wound up being for crypto, but could just as easily have been for granola bars or that workout machine he uses. The funniest ad starred noted schlemiel and lifestyle skeptic Larry David as himself, a guy who's lived many lifetimes consistently against the greatest inventions of his age. He was against the wheel. He was against the fork. Here he regards the light bulb and the moonshot skeptically. Can I be honest with you? It stinks. Nobody's gone to the moon ever. Why not? It's far. It's too far. It's far. Until finally, we hear about this crypto exchange, which touts as its finest quality the fact that Larry David is against it. It's a safe and easy way to get into crypto. Eh, I don't think so. And I'm never wrong about this stuff. Never. Don't be like Larry, the words read over the music. Don't miss out on the next big thing. Okay, funny. Also, I read today that the ad had 112 actors, 134 crew members, seven sets, COVID protocols that cost $100,000 a day for a seven-day shoot. It produced seven and a half hours of raw footage, which was cut down to that 60-second ad. And all that for a total mischaracterization of Larry David's history as a visionary. Larry David, or his characters, George on Seinfeld and the eponymous Larry David on Curb Your Enthusiasm, they haven't actually been anti-progress. They are innovators. They invented Festivus. It's a Festivus miracle! (laughs) Which went from a fictional holiday to having a good run in the real world. Larry David on Curb tried to invent the self-heating coffee cup. I mean, I'm so sick of taking five, six, seven sips, and it's cold. It's as if coffee is dictating to us when it must be consumed. Ran into a white supremacist in that one, but still, great idea. And Kramer invented or wrote a coffee table book about coffee tables, and of course came up with the bro, which is a bra for men. You want me to wear a bra? No, no. A bra is for ladies. Meet the bro. <laughs> Uh, Let's say, let's call that small or medium to small swings, though they may be, they were not born of a mind resistant to change. Larry David's real innovations have been in the world of social mores. He's a crusading anthropologist. Seems like a contradiction. Contradictions are what make things funny. Larry David discovered and addressed the best treatment for close talkers and high talkers and soft talkers. And just think of double dipping. Before Larry David came around, before he named and shamed this phenomenon, it was widespread, 
but not widely policed. I mean, he should pretty much be remembered alongside Joseph Harvey or Louis Pasteur for his work with germs. Larry David changed the world because he embraced change. My biggest problem with the Larry David is wrong about innovation ad is that it plucks all the innovations that were met with doubt and division, but wound up changing the world for the better, which happens. And of course, an ad like this is going to do that. It wants to prime the viewer into having certain specific connotations and examples in mind, but not others, not the many others. This goes on all the time. Every time a far out idea is criticized as far out, someone will come up with a list of similar ideas that caught on. Think about all the times we were dismissed of of great positive change. Okay, sure. But think about all the many, many, many more other times we embraced stupid change or worse. Ideas that were once thought of mad and are now thought of much worse than mad. Martian canals, mesmerism, spontaneous generation, Dr. Moffat's Tathena power, which relieved the bowel troubles of children of any age. It was just mercury. How about the salubrious effect of tobacco? Phrenology, Caesar Lombroso's theory that a small indentation on the base of the skull predicted criminality. I guess he's seen, or that idea is seen as discredited, and yet the guy is still known as the father of modern criminology. But the range of just really bad ideas goes from lobotomies, let's say, on one end, to Pepsi Clear on the other. The irreparable to the irrelevant. But there have been many, 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 many more bad ideas than good ones. It's just that most of the bad ones haven't generated enough speculative wealth to afford four ads during the Super Bowl. Larry David's disapproval is not a leading indicator of an innovation's worth. If anything, Larry David's one great innovation, that you could have a TV show supposedly about nothing, but really full of unlikable characters who never grow or learn, and that show could set records for viewership and remuneration, that has more proof of concept behind it than everything on the blockchain. Larry David also had another pretty good idea. When the crypto people offered him millions of dollars, he said yes. And I don't really have to wonder that hard if he took his payment in a check or a little chunk of the blockchain. On the show today, I spiel about the end of mask mandates in blue states. But first, Donald Trump has both receded from his once ubiquitous status, but he also persists, haunting the U.S. political process. Is there any exorcism that can take hold? How much should we pay attention to the man who needs attention? How to tell if averting our eyes is civic irresponsibility, given the seriousness of what he may be plotting? We'll talk about all this, plus the Republican Party's Trump-related choices with David French, uneasy erstwhile Republican. The Dispatch's David French is up next. I've not been thinking so much about Donald Trump. It's kind of nice. It's freed up my time to think about other things like the supply chain and inflation, but also the giant slalom. And you know me, I'm not anxious. This wasn't self-care. This was mostly news judgment, but maybe it was also self-care. So Trump is the proverbial horse in the hospital, as per John Mulaney's description, but Trump is also 
kind of a mental disorder, one of those mental disorders that forces you to feast upon your own thoughts. But here's the thing. Someone suffering from that kind of obsession might go to a psychiatrist and the advice wouldn't be, well, just don't think about it. The advice would be something like, well, here's some medication and here's a way to recognize triggers and here's the version of thoughts you should think about maybe and here's some techniques for thoughts you shouldn't think about. So thinking about thinking about Trump got me thinking about David French, the senior editor of The Dispatch. He's a columnist for The Atlantic. He's the author of Divided We Fall. And he and his cohorts on The uh, Dispatch talk and think about Trump all the time. Maybe I've offloaded my thinking to people like them, but I wanted to talk to him about how he thinks about this. Hello, David. Thank you for indulging me on that thinking about thinking. Uh, well, thanks so much for having me. It's a, it's a real treat. So I think that my calculations and regular news calculations and your calculations at a shop like the Dispatch are all a little different. So first, let's start with you guys. Do you ever just say, let's not even talk about this. It's not worth it. We're just elevating nonsense. All the time. And we draw that line a lot with the endless fascination with congressional various congressional backbenchers. Uh, so our our sort of default is we're going to we're going to think long and hard before we're going to jump into the next Madison Cawthorn news cycle, for example. Let, let me put it this way. A controversy regarding an outrageous statement or an outrageous news story really has to rise to a certain level of what we think of as real world importance <laughs> before we're going to jump into all of that. Right. And so the relationship with, you know, Cawthorn or Marjorie Taylor Greene or Boebert, or who I actually sadly can list about 20 people who would fall in this category, they're uh, one degree of separation from Trump. And I guess the only reason that they even get elected is some affiliation with Trumpism. But what about Trump himself? I mean, inherently, you could say this was the leader of the free world. He's an extremely important and destabilizing force. So whatever he says, whatever pronouncements he makes that are terrible and shouldn't be made by a former president and shouldn't be believed by 29% of the people and 70% of the Republican Party, just by dint of his status, they are newsworthy. But are you always going to get into them? And what makes you stop about, you know, things that actually come from Trump's mouth or whatever his press release shop is putting out? Yeah, well, there's a different calculus with Trump. I mean, Trump, as you said, not just a former president of the United States. He's also the front runner, clearly, for the Republican nomination. And so with Trump, in many ways, the default switches. So whereas with a, like a congressional backbencher, you got to show me why it's relevant. With Trump, it's kind of the reverse. You got to show me why it's irrelevant <laughs> and because he still has an enormous hold. Now, I think, you know, I live in the middle of red America. My neighborhood is about 85% Republican. I think his grip is slipping a little bit, especially sort of with the casual Republican. But, um, you, with him, it's a very different thing. And, and I, one of the things I do not do is I don't play the game that the Trump right wants to play, which is when you critique Trump, people will say, what are you doing obsessed with Trump? But they never say that about people who are continuing to promote and defend Trump. You could wear all red. You could have a MAGA hat. You could have a Don Jr. is my son button. And th that person will never be critiqued as being obsessed with Trump. No, no, no. <laughs> so, yeah, so it's, it's a one way attack so that if you are attacking Trump now, it's shut up because you're obsessed with Trump. If you're promoting Trump, nobody's going to say shut up. So I don't play that game. My my view is. I'm going to treat him like a former president and front runner for the next nomination, which means his words actually matter because they darn well matter to his supporters. 
So, you know, trying to draw a wall around him and saying, oh, look at you, you're obsessed, you're obsessed. Nope, I'm not, I'm not playing that game. I'm treating him exactly as his stature merits. Okay, so that's your calculation. I'm glad it is. I could check in on the dispatch and see what uh, former Republicans, or maybe some of you still identify as current Republicans, are thinking about Trump. That's a service. That's also a niche. So what about if you were the New York Times or I'm not going to say MSNBC. They're very ratings driven by Trump obsession. Or CNN. What's the uh, platonic ideal of how much coverage to give him? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, again, I mean, I think that the the reality is it's going to be a lot of coverage because he's in a position completely different from our most recent ex-presidents because our most recent ex-presidents were not injecting themselves into the new cycle and they were not front runners. So yeah, I don't think you run around saying, look at Trump's golf swing. But when he puts out absurd statements about the election or when there's news about mishandling of documents, or that he might still be in contact with Kim Jong-un, I'm just not buying the argument that says it's Trump derangement syndrome or Trump obsession to pay attention to him in those circumstances. It He's still a former president. He's still a front runner to be you know the next GOP nominee. He's still putting himself out there. Um, and it sort of feels like you're actually playing games if you don't cover him, if that makes sense. But aren't you playing his game if you do? This is what he wants. Well, is it, that's a, you know, again, that's a really, that's a good question. I mean, I tend to be of the view that if one of the most prominent American political leaders in the country, one of the two most prominent, lies, um, he should be called out on his lies. Now, that's obviously not doing anything with the sort of the core of the core of the core. They're completely immune to that. But what I have found is very interesting is people reach their limit with him at very different times. And so so the idea of sort of saying, well, everyone who's reached the limit with him has already reached their limit with him. I just think that's false. I, I, in my own experience, uh, you know, I've had friends who we're with him all the way through and all the way through everything and are just like, can't he go away now? Can't he go? Okay. So that's, let's hold that in our heads that different people have different breaking points. Yet at the same time, I wonder if the coverage that you're talking about or the one that I proposed, the hypothetical with CNN and the New York Times, are they reaching the Trump fan who might hypothetically have a breaking point somewhere in the distance? Because, well, you know, you know, you live among a lot of people who are Trump fans and talk to them. Well, I think, again, just living in the middle of, you know, I'm in Williamson County, Tennessee, which um, those those folks who really pay close attention to politics will recognize as a very prosperous, very bright red suburb of Nashville. That's also a home of a lot of the GOP donor class in our in our region. And so what you'll notice here is that there's real division, but it is not division apparent to people who are outside the community. Okay, so you're gonna have your people who still have the Trump flag up. I drive when I'm, you know, when I'm driving to get my hair cut, what tiny little bit of hair I still have. I drive by a house every time that's got Trump 24, 2024, Trump one flags flying out in front of it. You'll still see the Trump trucks on occasion. You'll still see the flags on occasion. And that's a segment of the community that is, yeah, absolutely. They're, they're going to be the last ones. They're going to be the last ones off the SS Trump. <laughs> okay. 
but then there's a whole spectrum there um, that's short of that. Uh, so, for example, you know, I'll talk to a doctor all in on Trump, you know, was with him from the beginning, and then he's just exhausted by politics. And now he's just kind of turned off politics. So it's it's not that he's turned off Trump intentionally or specifically, but in turning off politics, he's now much more passive in his support of Trump. Well, that's a reachable person right there. It's a process. It is not It is not in an, an environment where you say, here's your fact check. <laughs> you know, here's your fact check, Trumpist. You know, chew on that. You know, that is not how it works. It works through a process of persuasion and relationships. And when one friend sort of backs away from Trump, another friend has a, a permission structure to do the same. And this is very relational, very community-based. Um, what we forget is that a lot of Americans have, politics has really assumed an almost religious importance in their lives or actual religious importance in their lives. And it's not, we're no longer in a world of, you know, a lot of rational thinking uh, through dueling fact checks. We're talking about relationships, sense of belonging in a community. And so these are all factors who, that are in play. And people change in different paces in different ways. And that's why patience and persistence and grace, quite frankly, are all factors that are really, really important if we're going to get through this moment in our history. So a little while ago, you talked about how early in the campaign there was this, the Republicans were hoping that Trump would go away. That was like a collective action problem. I see something similar going on now where Republicans are hoping to avoid the argument brought on by the recent censure of Kinzinger and Cheney and the, uh, and the resolution that legitimized the protesters. Now here's Kinzinger and he's on all the uh, political shows calling this quote, a defining moment for the party. I think it's a defining moment for every member of the House or Senate or any Republican leader. He's calling on the media and for voters to pin down every Republican and say, do you side with what the RNC did or do you condemn what they did? And I got to tell you, this is not a debate that your average Republican wants to have. Speaking of wanting it to go away, they really want this to go away. It didn't work with hoping Trump would go away. Will it work with hoping criticism of those who criticize Trump will go away? When you're talking about RNC resolutions, this is not something that really gets down to the to normal folks very much at all. But here, here's what I do think that is significant. So what I do think that is significant is you're seeing some of the really savvy, every now and then Mitch McConnell, whoever, whatever you want to say about Mitch McConnell, you cannot dispute the, the guy's political skills. So when Mitch McConnell sticks his head above the foxhole and delivers a broadside, that should tell you something, that he's seeing something, that he's worried about something. And he used the I word to describe what happened on January 6th, the insurrection, violent insurrection, I believe is what he said. So this is leadership. You know, one of the most powerful, one of the top three most powerful Republicans in the United States using that word. Even though Mitch McConnell came out saying it was essentially, he didn't say this, but he seemed to be implying it was wrong for the RNC to censure Kinzinger and Cheney. I don't think Mitch McConnell is signing on to Kinzinger's message of we need to make sure that every voter has this in their mind as a binary. In other words, Mitch wants it to go away and Kinzinger doesn't. Yeah. Oh, I think there's very little question that a lot of the same people 
who are in Republican leadership, who are really not wanting the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world to be coming to the front and center. They also don't want Cheney and Kinzinger to be front and center because Cheney and Kinzinger, I think to their credit, so I this is I am not criticizing them because I, I am 100% on board with Cheney and Kinzinger wanting to get to the bottom of what happened in the days and weeks leading up to January 6th and what happened on January 6th. So, in fact, isn't what they're engaged in something that's been derisively called David Frenchism? <laughs> Maybe a version of it, but um, I would say, so I, I don't mean this as a, a criticism, but if of Cheney and Kinsinger, who I think are correct, all right? But I will say, if you're a Republican, if you're a Republican and your, your fundamental goal is to get win a Republican majority, you have kind of two threats there. One is the greenism, okay, because that's, oh, you're too crazy. <laughs> and there's another one is Cheneyism or Kinzingerism because you're reminding America of probably the GOP's lowest moment in the modern era, right before the GOP wants to take a great deal of power back. And so, well, should the GOP have that mirror held up to it? Yeah. I think so. Absolutely. For the health of the republic, we got to have two healthy parties and, are, and a party that is still infected with insurrectionism is not a healthy party. And so, yeah, we got to have that reckoning. But is that something that really contributes in the short term to a Republican takeover of the Senate or a Republican takeover of the House? No, no, it, it is not. So you can see why if you're somebody like a Mitch McConnell, who's really focused on becoming majority leader again, you're trying on the one hand to fend off um, Marjorie Taylor Greene and company. On the other hand, you're trying to fend off Kinzinger and, and Cheney. If Kinzinger gets his question asked as a litmus test, you know, are you with the RNC or are you with what Mitch McConnell just said is a repudiation? And if the answer is, we're actually with the RNC, then is the Republican agenda, not will, but is the Republican agenda still something that traditional Republicans should support? Would you support it? Maybe it's become so overwhelmed by kowtowing to the cult of personality that, you know, it's no longer a worthy political project. Oh, I mean, there are, there are parts of conservatism that, in my view, are still worthy of support. But I don't know that you would say that they are the Republican agenda. I mean, this is, this is you know, what, what, has Repu what is the Republican agenda currently as manifested in, in law being passed around the country? A lot of it is this sweeping speech code movement to try to blast CRT out of public life through very blunt hammer, you know, the blunt instrument of law. A lot of it is this... Um, fundamental reversal on your view of the the liberty of private enterprise when it comes to taking aim at tech companies uh, when it comes to foreign policy you know you're seeing big voices on the right adopting essentially a pro-russia line when it comes to the conflict with ukraine so is are any of those things things that i would support absolutely not but at the same time they're also people in that big Republican tent who are still consistently pressing school choice, for example, or who are consistently for um, doubling down on America's defensive alliances abroad. I'm with that. Or, you know, people who are advocating sort of an original understanding of the Constitution when it comes to judicial interpretation. I'm for that. So there's a conflict within that is not settled.
And so when you say, well, is the Republican agenda worth supporting? Well, if it's Tuckerism, I'm out. <laughs> I'm out. But I can think of a number of politicians who, you know, they they support I they support ideas that I think lead to uh, human flourishing and peace and prosperity in this in this country and peace and prosperity ab- uh, abroad, maintaining of global peace abroad. And I would I you know those are folks that I think would be good to have in public office. But it's really a case by case, person by person basis. Where the, where the R by their name is not nearly as relevant as it used to be. David French is senior editor of The Dispatch. He writes in a lot of places like The Atlantic and The Dispatch. And I would commend you to the podcasts that he hosts with and of. The most prominent is called The Dispatch Podcast. David, thanks again. Thanks so much for having me. It's a, I really appreciate it. And now the spiel. The state of New Jersey is shedding their masks. New Jersey leading the way among several states governed by Democrats with legislatures dominated by Democrats and relaxing the mask mandates, recommending the same to their school districts to the extent they can control the actions of individual school systems. It's not easy in New Jersey. Nothing about these past two pandemic-laden years has been easy. And there are impassioned voices on each side. You got a pretty decent amount of folks that are now going to be horrified. And it's for them, COVID is real and it can harm their kids. The PBS report balanced her out with a mom who doesn't want to wait even a few weeks for schools to go maskless. If we're able to do it March 7th, then I believe we're able to do it today. So I just feel that uh, March 7th almost isn't good enough. So the governor of New Jersey, Phil Murphy, heard these arguments and consulted experts and made his decision. Now, listening to constituents and monitoring public comments at school board meetings, listening to officials who have direct contact with stakeholders, this is what being responsive to the citizenry is all about. Only there is one form of listening that is not seen as responsive, but is craven, and that is a focus group. Because if a politician asks a focus group, he's asking for it from other politicians, like in this case, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. Okay, Phil Murphy decides to withdraw the mask mandate in New Jersey, right? Because he had a near-death experience on election day in November, and it's now come public that they ran focus groups, that the Murphy administration in New Jersey ran focus groups post the election to find out what was bothering people the most. Mask mandates was at the top of that list, and all of a sudden, Phil Murphy, who's had the most severe lockdowns in all the states in the country. He changed course because the people wanted him to change course, of course, which is to be condemned. That Phil Murphy adopted a policy that you, Chris Christie, advocated for, easing mask restrictions, but did it in a way with a focus group that you apparently don't approve of, even though you've used many focus groups in your lives, that cannot be countenanced. This all makes sense in the octagon that is U.S. political news analysis. If a Democrat makes the right decision 
for the right reasons, but on the wrong timetable or using the wrong tools, we're obligated to ask a Republican to gut him and display the innards on national TV. Also, vice versa. It definitely goes vice versa. I don't know. Maybe you hate those kind of bombastic criticisms that uh, the Sunday shows favor. Maybe you like a nice, easy to listen to podcast with a more affable treatment of the issue. And let us have them take us through the New Jersey decision. The story in New Jersey starts in November. New Jersey was one of two states that had an off-year gubernatorial race. So that meant that Governor Phil Murphy was up for re-election in November. The story of New Jersey actually starts about 180 million years ago. New Jersey bordered on North Africa back then. But then continental drift. All right, let's let's move ahead and drop the bed. The reporter who was talking there, Lisa Lehrer, heard on the daily, was the lead reporter in a time story that chronicled how after a closer than expected election, Murphy and his advisors sought to understand what was weighing on the electorate. They, it turns out, were tired and fed up with mask mandates, which is understandable. And so Murphy moved to drop the mandates immediately. Actually, no, not immediately, because he did the focus groups in the fall. And then he saw that Omicron was sweeping across the nation. So if ignoring the science, just giving in to his voters was his method, he wouldn't have done what he did, which is keep the mandates while the death toll and infection rates were rising. Other states did not do this. There were maskless states all throughout the country during Omicron. In fact, Florida, Iowa, Montana, Tennessee, and Texas were not only maskless on a state level, they also passed laws saying local municipalities or school districts couldn't pass their own mask mandates if they wanted to. But it is true, not only true, but true, that the federal government and the CDC still don't have official guidance that mask mandates should be dropped. The Daily got into this. Tina Lair framed Biden's bind this way. Well, I think it's really important here to remember that Biden campaigned as someone who would listen to the science. That was a major part of his argument against uh, former President Trump, that he would follow the science, he would listen to the CDC, and really have his policy be governed by what public health experts are saying. Now, there was a conflation there. Did you notice this? Biden said he'd follow the science, that he'd follow the science, that he'd follow the CDC, that he'd follow the science. Did you catch what was different there? The thing is, the CDC isn't the science. They are scientists. They're tasked with making judgment and weighing health initiatives. But the very many public health experts who've looked at COVID trends and at Omicron are also the science. They understand the science and they have come to different conclusions. They have weighed different considerations. I think for a time, during the Trump administration, the CDC was so embattled and so ignored by many in the Trump administration, and also Trump came to be seen as a perfect negative correlation with the CDC, i.e. the science, that it affected our thinking to this day. As inaccurate as Trump often was, the framing that the CDC is the anti-Trump, 
Therefore, the CDC always has the answers or always has the science because Trump never did. That is wrong. The CDC isn't the science. I'm not saying they're anti-science. They're not close to anti-science. But veering away from CDC recommendations to take recommendations from other leading experts who may be more in touch with local conditions, that's totally legitimate. And by the way, a local condition does include people's attitudes. The willingness of the Chinese, maybe we shouldn't say willingness, the fact that the Chinese will undergo a total lockdown that gives China a different political calculation than an official in New Jersey might have when he looks at the willingness of his or her people to undergo a total lockdown. The willingness of a West Texan to wear a mask is different from the willingness of someone from West Caldwell. That's a place in New Jersey. So it is legitimate in a representative democracy to take into account the range of the public's opinion, overlay that with the range of the outbreak and make a good choice. And it's not hypocritical and it's not cynical and it's not a retreat from past promises to make a choice that might be out of step or even a week ahead of the CDC. It's just called governing as best you can in truly difficult times. Every country in the world has tough choices to make regarding COVID. The open countries, the open actual democracies, in some ways have tougher choices. I mean, what China does, no one's gonna tell China not to do. Let's take Denmark. Denmark just opted for national openings, schools, nightclubs, everything. They're pretty much going back to a pre-COVID reality, telling people to make their best choices for themselves. That's a tough thing to do. There are arguments for more restrictions. England, Britain, I should say, has more restrictions than Denmark does. But you know what's shocking about the Danish decision? It's not the choice they made, but it's the fact that they made it unanimously. It had the backing of every political party. And Denmark is a robust democracy. They certainly have a range of views there. It's just that the dominant mode of discourse, campaigning, never not campaigning, they just don't try to eviscerate every decision the other guy makes. There are so many tough decisions when it comes to the coronavirus. There are lots of bad choices. Could we, for once as America, navigate through this pandemic, which has taken just about a million of us with a wee bit less scorching of the earth? Is there any incentive whatsoever to lower the temperature and be a little less bloodthirsty? Because if it's the body count you crave, by God, we've got one. And that's it for today's show. The Gist's assistant producer is Corey Wara. The senior producer is Joel Patterson. Michelle Pesca is senior coordinator of change management for Peachfish Productions. The show is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, check out AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening. <laughs>